he had this way he he sang when he played his guitar and he had his head down with his hat on and then he lifted his head up and he acted beautifully as if he was surprised that there were tens of thousands <laughs> of us there and he doffed his cap uh, his hat it was a sort of you know homba and it was like oh i was so glad to have seen him one guest 10 songs 10 reasons music was my first love on Radio Glamorgan. My guest on this edition of Music Was My First Love is a Yorkshire-born Cardiff-educated author who now divides her time between Italy, London and Devon. She's written three novels, one of which, Early One Morning, has already been turned into a dramatisation by Radio 4 and The Fourth Show. Writing in the Scotsman, Alan Massey, who called Early One Morning a wonderful imagined novel, described my guest as a natural novelist who cherishes the details of daily life. He went on to say that it's her ability to evoke tangled emotions and present them convincingly that makes her book remarkable. She's the winner of the Society of Authors McTerrick Prize in 2012, a Waterstone Book of the Month for Early One Morning and a Sunday Times bestseller. We'll talk to my guest Virginia Bailey about Early One Morning and her writing in general, as well as her 10 musical choices kicking off with John Lennon. <laughs> Sean. Virginia Bailey, welcome to Radio Glamorgan's Music Was My First Love. Thank you. Uh, tell me about your first choice, Beautiful Boy, from John Lennon. Okay, it's, it concentrates your mind when you only have ten. And I was thinking about music, the first music that I loved, that I consciously as a child chose and thought, this is my music. And it was really the Beatles. But then I thought, if I can only have ten, I don't think I want to be listening to I Want to Hold My Hand or Can't Buy Me Love Forever. I want something that I would listen to over and over again. And so I chose this because it also makes me think of becoming a mum to my first son. And it was on his uh, playlist for the birth of his first son. So it's also about becoming a grandmother. Yeah. And there's two of my beautiful boys. So I feel like I've, I've packed masses into that first choice. Me aged five, me as a mother, me as a grandmother, and those beautiful boys. Circle of life. Mm, exactly. So do I take it then that you were a music lover from an early age? Um, I would say yes, but I would also qualify it by saying I'm not really musical. Like, I can't play an instrument or no. even particularly sing in tune. But I warble all the time and I dance a lot. Excellent. And always have. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you were born in Yorkshire, uh, leaving when yep. you were seven. What brought the family to Cardiff? Uh, my dad got a job at what was then the polytechnic the south glamorgan polytechnic yeah. it's a university now um so we moved from halifax to cardiff and that's where i grew up and that's it's not where i'm from but it's sort of where i'm from because yeah. because there aren't really any ties anymore with yorkshire other than a little bit of accent but is is there still a yorkshire lass in there somewhere yeah yeah definitely And and what was your childhood like? Thinking about where your life has taken you, was there encouragement to read a lot at home? Was it a house full of books? Yes. Yes, it was, although I've never really thought about that. But yes, it was. And um, 
Yeah, I can remember where I'm thinking of all the different places in the house where the bookcases were and the different sorts of books that were in the different bookcases. Uh, my mum was an avid reader and was always getting books out of the library, so I would read those too. And my dad, um, he had sort of books that seemed a bit esoteric. He had poetry books and um, sort of philosophy books and things like that, that kind of mind-expanding stuff. I don't think there was a huge library of books in the house, but there was a turnover all the time of books coming and going. Let's uh, move straight on to your second choice uh, from yes. Belgian singer Jacques Brel, uh, a man who had and probably oui. still has a massive following around the world. Yes, deservedly so, yeah. I think. Very dramatic, um, very dramatic delivery of his songs, very emotional. And why this particular track? Mm, well, I, I wanted to have something from, again, this is, the imp my father was a big musical influence on me because he played a lot of jazz and he played a lot of um, French songs and he loved Georges Brasson, he loved Jacques Brel, he loved Edith Piaf, but, um, and it introduced me to the idea of another language and that that was probably the first listening to Jacques Brel and trying to understand the words, which I couldn't understand because I couldn't speak French mm. at the time, that was something that drew me into languages and which then became the thing that I went on to study and loved. So part of the way that I learnt languages was, and French was the first one, was by, if you don't count Welsh at school, mm. was by learning the words and warbling tunelessly along. Je t'offrirai des perles de pluie venues de pays où il ne pleut pas. Je creuserai la terre jusqu'après ma mort pour couvrir ton corps d'or et de lumière. Je ferai un domaine où l'amour sera roi, où l'amour sera loi, où tu seras reine. Ne me quitte pas, ne me quitte pas. Ne me quitte pas, ne me quitte pas. So there's still a, a Yorkshire lass inside you. Does Cardiff still hold a special place in your heart and memories? Well, it does. Um, yeah, of course. I was brought up in Cardiff and, you know, went to school there, went to Cardiff High, went to house school Landaf, went um, still my younger brother and his family and my mother all live in Cardiff, so I come often. And it was quite a large part of the setting of uh, my second novel, Early One Morning, that you were mentioning mm. at the beginning. Um, and you also mentioned the dramatisation on Radio 4, and that um, that was delightful, that the way that they showed... I don't know. Um, you probably can't hear it anymore, but it was... It was really lovely to have it dramatised and to have that Cardiff side of it mm. brought very clearly to life um, and that was separate from the... You know, to, to have it sort of differentiated with the sort of South Wales lilt in people's voices and... Um, yeah. Cardiff is still important to me. You've travelled a lot in your life and, and you spent a lot of time in Africa. 
Yes. I haven't spent a lot of time in Africa, but I've been to Africa a lot. Right. Um, for many years, my main uh, job was as one of the editors of something called the Africa Research yeah. Bulletin. And so I had, I acquired a lot of, I mean, it was writing a sort of political and economic digest of what was going on on the African continent. And my area was West Africa, Francophone West Africa in particular. And um, so I wrote about it sort of for a living and then started to go and visit Mali and Senegal and various other West African countries and developed a love of it, yeah. And, and you, you taught English uh, there for a while as a foreign language. Yes, I've taught English as a foreign language in various places. So yeah. I'm presuming then that your time in, that you've been in Africa helped shape uh, the first novel, uh, Africa Junction. It really did. Yeah. I think because I'd done this quite sort of dry academic writing about it and then went to the places where I knew, where I had a mass of information but no real emotional connection and then went and was bowled over by sort of sounds, sights, colours, the sort of intensity of the difference, the intensity of the light and shade and... um, to name but a few things, mm. I, I was. It, it then started to colour my, my thought, my way of thinking, and it became the inspiration of that first novel. Yeah, the the idea of mirrored lives, I suppose, of, of um, a, a way of showing by showing a, a British woman, and her African counterpart of, who she sees as sort of her soul sister somebody she grew up with and then and the difference in their lives and the difference in what they can and can't do with their lives um so it, it was the image of a of a of a british woman looking in the mirror and seeing the reflection of an african woman instead of herself and then what un, what kind of unravels from that but yeah it was very much inspired by going to senegal and mali for the first time. Uh, Lady Day for your next choice, uh, Virginia. I'm seeing yes. you. A Billie Holiday fan? Huge Billie Holiday fan. Again, the influence of my dad. But I, I've i got an... Ab- Billie Holiday is somebody that I listened to from the age of probably about 12 or so, and I've never stopped. And That's a big fan. Yeah. I mean, you're only 22, but that's a, a big Exactly. Fan. Yeah. Exactly, so true. And any reason for this particular track, I'm seeing you? Um, I wanted to choose one that wasn't one of the sadder ones, of which there are many. Yeah. Um, I thought I would choose something that was more uplifting, although it does have a sadness in it because because it's about parting and loss, but it also has... Um, but it's not about death or lynching. Seeing you Virginia Bailey's third choice on this edition of Music Was My First Love from Billie Holiday. So how did the initial thought come to you that you wanted to write a novel? Oh, 
I think that I'd probably always thought that I'd wanted to write a novel, but that um, life sort of got in the way. And then I don't think I hadn't, when I first started to write, which was, I mean, returned to writing because I wrote a lot as a young person. Then I stopped. But when I came back to it, I didn't know exactly what it was I wanted to write. I wrote quite a lot of poetry and tried some short stories. And a few short stories got published. And then I couldn't quite see how to extend it into something bigger, but I knew I wanted to. And that first novel, Africa Junction, is sort of like a, a, a thematically connected um, array of short stories. It's not entirely... Um, it's something in between a short story collection and a novel-ish, mm. kind of. And so that was my stepping stone to the next stage. Um and then it was with the ne the following novel, the early one morning, that it really, the sort of proper novelistic kind of impetus was there. But I always wanted to write. I just did other things a lot and didn't really quite allow myself in some bizarre way. And it took a while to learn to do that. And do you sit down, when you start to write, do you sit down... At your desk with a blank piece of paper, or do you need to have an idea formulating in your head first? Well, it always starts with a blank piece of paper. Whatever, however many ideas you've got formulating yeah. in your head, you know, there's still the blank piece of paper to um, put your mark on. But uh, I think there's different ways of creating, just like there probably are different ways of composing and painting and any yeah. other artistic endeavour. And I move between various ways. So... Sometimes it's actually in putting the words on the paper or on the screen that by putting the wrong words down or some words down, then the right ones or the better ones start to become more apparent. But sometimes there's an image or an idea in my head or a, a, a kind of vision, without wanting to sound visionary, but there's a sort of... I, c I can see a scene, I suppose, yeah. and I can... I can so the, so the idea of it, the visual side of it, appears first and then I'll find the words to describe it or to bring it to life with just words and then I'll think, oh, okay, what's going to happen now? Um, I can then sort of do something with it once, it once it has been evoked in words. But just as often, yeah, and then every every different way there is of composing a piece of prose I've probably tried and some of them work better than others for me I mean one way way that works if I'm a bit stuck is to just walk around the room and perhaps speak it um, and then I can unstick the ideas and find my way through to whatever the knotty bit is and disentangle it and move on is there a lot of research involved as well in writing? I think it depends on your topic. Yeah. Uh, I like doing research because there's something a bit swatty in me. And also, 
um, it's easier looking things up and finding them out than it is creating. Mm. So sometimes it's a distraction. But, uh, yeah, there is quite a lot of research. So for the first two books, I was using stuff that I largely already knew because of things that I'd done before in my life. And for the third one, The Fourth Shore, um, that was a lot of research. It was... And it was quite hard research because it was reading about stuff that hadn't been written about, that nobody else had sort of synthesised. Mm. Um, so I don't think I would do that again. Can I just say before we move on, you have the most soothing voice. Um, oh, OK, were well, you falling asleep? I, if I fall asleep, <laughs> it's not because I'm bored. It's just wonderful. Uh, I, could, I could listen to you all day. Um, oh, good. <laughs> next up from your list of ten songs... Yes. Uh, is the most chosen solo artist in over 70 editions of music. It was my first love, David Bowie. Huge back catalogue. Oh. So any particular reason for Life on Mars? Um, okay. David Bowie is the soundtrack of my teenage years. And I, I could have chosen 10 songs easily from David Bowie or 10 songs from my teenage years. And I thought, no, this one will have to do. Life on Mars, okay, when I used to listen to those songs, Hunky Dory and Ziggy Stardust and Aladdin Sane, the albums in particular, I used to think that David Bowie was singing my life. And um, when I didn't understand what he was saying, I thought that the fault was mine and that I just had to try a bit harder because it was something for me to get. And Life on Mars, there are several lines in it where I think, yes, <laughs> um, if we listen to it, you might be able to guess what they are. Who's in the best-selling show? Is there life on Mars? It's that, um, all of those things, that mixture of things. And that the idea that the girl with the mousy hair has, you know, seen it all before. Like, you know, you're both mousy and world-weary at your at your uh, tremendously youthful age where you don't really know much. Your next choice, Virginia, is from Bob Marley and the Wailers. A couple of studio versions of this song, but surely we can only play the live version. Tell me about No Woman, No Cry. Okay, No Woman, No Cry. Um, I remember hearing this for the first time and thinking, what is it? What What is it? Not having the wherewithal to process reggae, really? I hadn't heard that kind of beat before and but everybody was talking about it. it was like the thing everyone was listening to and then uh, and when I was at university he came and played um, here in Exeter where I am now he came and played at the Great Hall and I saw him <laughs> and later I went to Jamaica and went to his house oh. not that he was there anymore no. unfortunately it was a little museum but um yeah, he just captured a moment and he captured, he, 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 it was the song of then, whenever it came out, 75 or whatever it was, and uh, um, I feel very pleased to have seen him. Yeah, little darling, don't shed no tears, no woman, no 
Cancer Trust is the only charity in the UK dedicated to improving the lives and chances of survival of teenagers and young adults with cancer. They provide specialist services to help young people live their lives more normally. I'm Hannah and I'm proof that TCT are there to support people like me, but they need your help to do more. For every young person they reach, there's another they cannot. If you can spare your time, support or even your running shoes, please get in touch. Contact them at hello at teenagecancertrust.org or call on 0207 612 0370. We'd love to hear from you. From the heart of the heath, online, on mobile and on smart speaker, we are Radio Blumongan. I'm your man. If you want to love him, I'll do anything that you ask me to. And if you want another kind of love. I have loved Leonard Cohen since I lived in Italy. We had a cassette machine that chewed up all of the tapes except for two. One of them was Leonard Cohen and the other one was Simon and Garfunkel, who never really hit me in the same way. And I loved him then because of the poetry of it. And then I loved him more as he got older because of the sort of profundity of the deepness of his voice, but also... So what he was expressing. And I got to see him at Glastonbury oh. when he was quite an old fella. Yeah. He was quite an old man and he, he had this way. He, he sang when he played his guitar and he had his head down with his hat on. And then he lifted his head up and he acted beautifully as if he was surprised that there were tens of thousands <laughs> of us there. And he doffed his cap, uh, his hat. It was a sort of, you know, homba. And it was like, oh, I was so glad to have seen him. It's interesting to me, on, on this fifth series of Musicals, My First Love, quite a few people have chosen one of his songs, and, and I have friends that like him, and you can't just like him. People, there's something about him that does something to people. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I read his poems. and I've read his poems. I've read his biography. I, yeah, um, watched the films, you know. Yeah. I think there's a sort of... Uh, an intimacy in the way of yeah. um, liking him. And that song, strangely, it reminds, I'm your man, it reminds me of, um, which is one of the ones that me and Leonard duet on, but obviously <laughs> my voice is like two octaves higher and he doesn't know. Um, but it reminds me of Numakitapa of the Jacques Brel one because yeah. it's sort of desperately trying to get a lost love back but there's a greater wisdom in his words because he knows that you don't get somebody back by wailing at their door and crying and clawing and begging. Um, and that's, yeah, so the the words, the sentiment is different. Let's talk about uh, probably your most famous and most successful novel, Early One Morning. It's the story yeah. of uh, Chiara Ravello who whose rescue of a Jewish child from his desperate mother as the Nazis round up the inhabitants of a Roman ghetto alters her future in ways she couldn't possibly have imagined. An incredibly powerful description. Where does the idea come from? And more importantly, uh, to go back to a question I asked you earlier, what kind of research went into the book? Hmm. So the answer to those is the sort of one and the same thing. Um, I did a degree in French and Italian, and then I went on to study for a master's which I didn't quite get round to finishing that one 
finished other ones. And um, it was into the literature resistance in France and Italy during the Second World War. And I went to Italy. I did loads of research on that and became very interested in the occupation of Rome uh, during the war. Found out masses of stuff. Never did anything with it because then I, my money ran out and I had to go off and earn a living and stuff. Um, but years later when I was thinking about wanting in some way to write about Italy because it was so important, it has been so important in my life, I had this memory, which turned out to be a false memory, uh, but it, so it was more of a, an invention, of something I'd read about a child being rescued from the trucks that took the Jewish population of Rome away in 1943. And so I kind of looked through all of my notes and my sources from those years before and couldn't find it and realised that I must have invented it myself, that it was a sort of hopeful story amid, amidst a terrible time. So there were stories of people saving children, but they were babies. They weren't. They were ones that could be sort of claimed and nobody was going to mm. so obviously object. Um, but that was where it came from. It came from a, this old, old, this research I'd done when I was younger, and also from the fact that whenever I went to Rome, and in fact when I go now, I would stay with my aunt who lives there, and she used to live in the ghetto. It's still called the ghetto now, and it had been a walled ghetto the pre in the nineteenth um, century but no longer was by the time of the Second World War. It's still a very Jewish area and it still has a big synagogue, um, but in fact it's probably more consciously, self-awarely Jewish now than it was um, 40, 50 years ago. But because I visited there and that is the area of Rome where I stayed from when I first went age 16, and I, it had this terrible history. That w that also influenced my choice of subject matter. Um, and I kept trying to write another novel, which was a sort of coming of age novel of the young girl from Cardiff who goes to Italy, but uh, <laughs> which is still in there. But it was too powerful. The tale of the little Jewish boy that gets rescued even mm. though he never asked anybody to rescue him and um, and it was debatable in how his life then turned out whether or not he considered it a rescue but and then I wove them together I took the two different stories that were pulling me and found a place where they met so Cardiff and Rome and coming of age story and uh, rescue tale and almost 80 years on since the end of the Second World War, uh, writers like yourself are still coming out with new stories and filmmakers are still discovering real-life stories, such as in recent years Schindler's List and The Pianist. Whether fiction or non-fiction, are there still stories from the atrocities of that war, do you think, still there to be told? Well, it seems that there are, and there seems there's a huge appetite to read them and watch them yeah. too. Um, and... I just happened upon... That wasn't a chosen thing. That wasn't a 
I didn't think, oh, this is a, you know, Second World War stories are perennially popular. I just told a tale and then, then it's, you know, it was, it struck a chord that I couldn't have imagined, I didn't know was there. Um, and as you alluded yeah. to earlier, um, early one morning was turned into a Radio 4 drama. Big vote of confidence, I would have thought, for you as a writer. Yeah. And yes, definitely. Um, and I, I think you need the little, you need markers along the way to, uh, certainly at the beginning of writing. Um, I mean, getting published is obviously a good, a good marker. But yeah. Africa Junction won this prize, this um, the Society of Authors McKittrick Prize, and that gave me some money. And that money took me to Italy to do some research not the historical research, but more the research of that you can only find out by sitting in a nice little bar in Trastevere mm. and sipping Prosecco and uh, chatting to people, that sort of research to help me write this novel. And then, so that sort of Philip um, from the first novel got me to the second one. And then, yeah, there were various things with Early One Morning, but that dramatisation was amazing because because it kind of gave me the story back to me gave me the story that i'd written back to me you know you can you can't read your own writing as if you're not the writer of I it understand. but you yeah. can listen to a dramatization of it or you can read it in another language if you speak that language um and that is a kind of gift back to you too um so that one was translated into quite a few languages including italian and that was also uh, a, felt like a huge reward that a novel set in Italy was translated into Italian, yeah. and um, and that was very lovely. And so was the Fourth Shore as well. And uh, doing publicity events in Italy is very different from doing them over here. And have you done the um, the talk version? The, the, the cover, what you call it, but have you the audio the, version that's the of word, it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Talk is just uh. as good. <laughs> um, well, they get actors, you know, to right. do it. Okay. I did offer. I said I would like to audition to read the last one because I thought that I might do it quite well, but they said no. They wanted a professional. Oh. Um, I know. Never mind. Um, yeah. A wedding next, Virginia. Tell me about this aria from the Marriage of Figaro. Ah, well, so Italy, as I said, Italy and Italian has been an abiding love in my life. Um, when I first went to Italy, I kind of discarded French for a bit, not entirely, but. Um, I discovered that I loved Italian and Italian things more. And this aria, it makes me think of my mum. I can remember going to, I've been to the opera several times with my mother. I don't think I'd listen probably to opera without her. But this particular song is one of those that I've learnt the words to and sing when nobody's listening. And... Um, not that everybody really talks in real life the way they mm. sing in opera anymore, but still, there is a delight to me in 
the fact that I know the words and can sing along. Writing is obviously very important to you, uh, as much as encouraging others. So how and why did Riptide come about? Ah. Um, so I did an MA in creative writing um, and there met a very good friend of mine, who Sally Flint, who's a poet, and we were talking about the lack of outlets for short stories, which both of us were writing at the time. And our then tutor suggested that we did something about it. So we so we did. It was sort of like a challenge. He laid down a challenge for us and we applied for some Arts Council funding and got a very small amount, but enough to to set this short story journal up and we asked people to send us stories and... We got a lot, actually, um, and most of them not very publishable, if truth be told, but some of them were, and we produced this first book. We didn't know what we were doing. We made loads of rookie mistakes, but we produced a book, and we had a book launch, and it was all very exciting, and we thought, oh, we, we know what we're doing. We're good at this, and we applied for much more funding, and asked people, put out a call for submissions and said, send us your stories. And lots of people did, and then we didn't get the funding, but we had undertaken to publish another one, and we somehow made it happen, and we've kind of sometimes limped and sometimes trotted along ever since, and nearly given up a few times because it's... uh, Largely thankless task, mm. small-scale publishing like this. But now it's got a new lease of life because we we are collaborating with a new MA in publishing um, uh, here at the uh, in Exeter at the university, and that is sort of providing us with some support. And uh, yeah, we're just we are just reading all of the submissions to the fifteenth our 15th volume, which will come out next year. And the theme is Breath, which has turned out to be quite a, a rich sort of theme for people to mine. And you never know, from all these uh, um, stories that you get, uh, might be the next uh, Virginia Bailey. <laughs> yes, or, or, or something... <laughs> Um, more magnificent, if such can be imagined. Yes, and we have uh, we have been the first publishers of people who then have gone on to publish a collection of short stories or a novel to be no, you know, to become. We always publish somebody new in every, you know, even if it's only one person, mm. and well, it's not really a rule, but that has always happened. 
So it's a mixture of emerging writers, brand new, and a few established ones if we can get them because they go on the cover and they help sell the book. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we are going from now from strength to strength and I've got a fantastic editorial board and um, it's taking off. Good. Who is uh, Rakia Traore, if I'm saying that correctly? Yeah, Rakia Traore is from Mali um, in West Africa and I guess that's going to be the next song. So she is a wonderful singer and I wanted to have a West African musician represented amongst my ten because I love West African music and um, I first, and I didn't know if it was going to be Salif Keita or Yusuf Ndor or one of those more famous ones but um, I then thought, well, I need a woman and she is the most wondrous, delicately poised performer. I've seen her perform at WOMAD Festival and she has a sort of aura and charisma and she expresses that West African feeling, that sort of soulful rhythmic music that you can dance to but music that you I mean I don't this one that I've chosen I think she's singing in Bambara so I don't even understand the words and as has probably become apparent words are hugely important and I I love lyrics and I can love a song as much for the words as for the music but this I don't even know what she's saying but it still touches me She sings in French and in occasionally in English too, so it's not all so opaque. No, I'm going to go away and look up more of her music. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. You're listening to Radio Glamorgan's Music Was My First Love with author Virginia Bailey talking me through her life and writing career whilst choosing ten of her favourite songs. A very eclectic mix of music. Uh, tell me about your penultimate choice from Ellie Ford. Okay, so... Um, this song was written by my son, Harry Haynes. So my younger son is a musician and he played for some time with Ellie Ford and her band. Um, she's a fantastic harp harpist. And this was from the second album that they made together. And I wanted to have one of his songs and this is one that I love. It's called All That Is Left. I'm being introduced to some bloody music tonight. They are that album and the one before they're so worth listening to yeah. they're like sh- extraordinary it mm. sort of transports you and I, I like that in particular because one my son wrote it two I can hear his voice right. and his guitar on it and and it's good 
Your final choice, Virginia, is from uh, mm. Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Yes. Tell us about it. It's interesting. When I was putting the, the program together, um, I was thinking, oh, that doesn't fit in with all the other songs. But <laughs> having heard all the, particularly people like Lana Cohen, um, it's not such a surprise, really. Mm, that's interesting that you thought that. But um, this was a song I came across during the first lockdown. And I don't think I've listened to a huge amount of Nick Cave before that. But when I heard this song, it it sort of became my lockdown song because I, mean, I find it very exquisitely beautiful, but it's also about being hugged. And it was such a hugless time yeah. for many of us. And um, so listening to this song felt like a way of having a hug. Okay. That's a good way to end, having a <laughs> hug. Um, yes. It's three years since your last novel. Why are we still waiting for a fourth? Oh, I ask myself the same question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm writing it now. Um, I wrote some weird stuff during lockdown. I blame Nick Cave. No, I don't. I blame... <laughs> and although you have to be very solitary to write, it's a solitary thing. You have to shut yourself away. There's something about choosing to shut yourself away yeah, and not being forced to do it. So I think I was too shut away and I was writing stuff that I then discarded. Actually, I just discarded it and I've started again. Um... And I'm, uh, I don't know if I would say bowling along, but I'm really into it at the moment and it's going well. So watch this space. And as you look back on uh, your professional career, in particular the three books you've written, you must look back at them with pride. Hmm. Uh, yeah, on and off, you know. Uh, hard to, yes, of course. I'm, I, I, I would say... With, with delight, really. I'm so glad that, that I got round to doing the thing that I really have an aptitude for mm. and love doing, and um, and sort of got over myself sufficiently to just get on and do it enough to get better and better, hopefully. And hopefully well, that will go on a bit longer. Well, whenever the fourth book comes out, we wish you every success. It's been a real Thank pleasure, you Virginia. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Into my arms, oh Lord, into my arms, oh Lord, into my arms, oh Lord, into my arms. You've been listening to Music Was My First Love on Radio Glamorgan, where Virginia Bailey has been choosing ten of her favourite songs. I'm Andrew Wolfe, and join me again soon when someone else chooses ten of their favourite tracks on another edition of Music Was My First Love. Music of the future And music of the past
Music brings me through 